This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss gun violence, more specifically school shootings, with Dr. Naran Alajba, a Washington State-based pediatrician. Dr. Alajba, welcome to the program. Thank you. Dr. Alajba's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, many, if not most listeners to this podcast are well aware U.S. policymakers allow for pervasive gun violence. For example, according to the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, the U.S. rate of gun violence is far greater than in comparably developed countries. For example, U.S. gun violence is 96 times higher than in Japan, 55 times higher than in the U.K., and 30 times higher than in Germany. Not too surprisingly, sadly, gun violence is not uncommon in schools. Per the Washington Post, since 2000, there have been more than 130 shootings in 43 states at elementary, middle, and high schools, and an additional 58 shootings at U.S. colleges and universities, including the recent Parkland, Florida shooting since 2000. For example, 70 high school children have been killed and 200 wounded. Gun violence explains in part why, per the Institute of Medicine's U.S. Health and International Perspective, the U.S. ranks last for men and second last for women in life expectancy among 17 high-income countries. Research evidence suggests gun violence is explained largely by one fact, gun prevalence. U.S. makes up less than 5% of the global population but owns 42% of the world's guns. Gun ownership in the U.S. is, for example, 150 times higher than in Japan. This single fact largely explains why guns used to commit homicides far exceeds other developed countries, for example, 471 times more prevalent than in the U.K. As for whether mental health issues explain gun violence, the rate of severe mental disorders in the U.S. is not dissimilar than in other wealthy countries. How to prevent gun violence has been limited by the NRA's backed Dickey Amendment in effect since 1996 that prohibits federal funding to conduct gun violence research. The February passed Bipartisan Budget Act, however, included a provision that allows the CDC to conduct such research, though the provision neither addressed the Dickey Amendment nor provided any related funding. With me again to discuss gun violence in schools, their effects, and what can or should be done by the medical community to reduce these tragedies is Dr. El Lagba. So with that as a uh, lengthy, apologies again, introduction, uh, let's uh, get to this. A month ago, uh, you wrote an essay posted in the healthcare blog titled, I Treated the Columbine Kids I Have Not Spoken Out Before. Just as a reminder to listeners, in 1999, two shooters killed Uh, 13 and wounded 21 uh, uh, students and teachers uh, in Colorado. Uh, Before I ask you why you wrote the piece, you stated, uh, every student and teacher inside Columbine High School was irreparably damaged forever. Uh, So let me ask, relative to irreparable damage, what does it mean clinically or medically uh, for survivors 
of mass shootings or what effect does it have on them? Well, I learned, I think, on the job what effect it had on them. So much of the media and reports concentrate on the lives lost, which, of course, is hugely important. However, often I find we ignore what happens to the children or the adults who witness these tragedies and go on with their lives. Their lives are completely changed. Their idea of safety is shattered. Their idea of attending school uh, without having to face violence is now shattered. And I think that's a huge part of, of the equation. I, I wasn't there the day of Columbine, and, and some people who read that essay got a little bit confused in that fact. It's important to mention, for me, I showed up two months afterwards, and then I was there for three years. And I saw many of those kids who, were, who came into the hospital, whether it was for PTSD, whether it was for anxiety difficulties or depression or sleep problems, or even pneumonia, I spoke with their parents. I spoke with them. And some of the stories they told me were horrifying. Okay. Uh, thank you. And, of course, you note in the essay that there's obviously issues of patient confidentiality. Uh, sure. So, sure. Uh, you're limited to say. Um, so suffice to say, these are lifelong consequences uh, to those who experience Absolutely. It. And that, Absolutely. of course, uh, means there are lifetime medical costs associated uh, as those who witness yeah. this. Okay, thank you. Yes. Yeah. So, Naran, um, relative to your motivation for writing uh, the piece, what, what prompted your contributing it again since uh, it had been a 19-year period? So I'm glad you asked this question because it turns out in my hometown uh, there were some very vocal teenagers and they started protesting or walking out or calling attention to the fact that they feel gun violence is a problem they shouldn't be facing in schools. And they wrote a very powerful essay in our local newspaper. And one of those kids I have known since the day she was born. So for me, to admire her efforts and her fellow students' efforts really made me reflect on my own experience and my own silence to what has been going on for 19 years. And maybe it's because I've become a parent in the last nine years. Um, I have four young children, nine and under, who are now attending school, and obviously Sandy Hook. Uh, the Sandy Hook tra tragedy played a large role in that because those were elementary age students. So I would say it's probably a culmination of multiple events, but really these kids standing up to fight for their safety, feeling that adults and other people around them aren't doing it, prompted me to, I think, feel a little bit ashamed that I hadn't done it before and really inspired me to write how I was feeling and how I think we should be supporting these kids, even if we don't agree 100% with their policy, um, the policy that they are supporting. Uh, however, we really should evaluate the fact that they are facing this danger head on every day, and I validate their efforts and I support them as they are now going to speak up. Okay, thank you. You did cite, and I thought with... Um great interest, and I certainly applaud this comment. You did cite uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for those unfamiliar. Yeah. 
the minister executed by the Nazis in 1945 who wrote the very famous volume, The Cost of Discipleship. Do you remember exactly your, your quotation you cited of Bonhoeffer's? Oh, yes. Okay, I'll just note, I do. It. I'll just note it for the listeners. Uh, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Not to speak is to speak, and not to act is to act. So I applaud you for uh, citing, obviously, very relevant. So let me um, ask, you, you also note, uh, and, I'll, and I'll cite uh, your statement, there are many like me. Uh, as a physician, guns are a topic I know I am not supposed to talk about with patients. I'm not really sure. It wasn't always this way. Doctors talked about guns in the same way they talked about everything else, but at some point, thanks to the lobbying of powerful interests, uh, groups in Washington, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought that was a fascinating comment. So let me ask you further. You practice, obviously, with other physicians, other pediatricians, other specialists, uh, mid-level clinicians, and others in healthcare. What's, what's the general sense within the physician-provider community uh, on this subject? Obviously, this is, a, I think, a generally held view. There's a certain... Um, cautiousness, um, but say more about uh, that feeling within your professional community. Well, I think we have always, uh, so pediatricians are obviously specialists in children. Mm-hmm. A, lot of our, a lot of our work is prevention, preventing injury, preventing infection, uh, preventing death, preventing tragedies, preventing adverse childhood experiences, if we can before they happen. So gun, talking about guns is like talking about firecrackers it, it, for most of us that are physicians. It's something we mention, and there's good data to show if families keep their guns locked up at home that their young child is less likely to obtain the weapon and then do something to themselves or others. So pediatricians obviously operate in the scientifically-based, evidence-based world, and that's an important part of what we do. However, in Florida, based on a large part of work by the NRA, they basically specifically uh, came up with legislation um, that said, you can take a physician's medical license if we ask a family about guns. So there's a couple of scary things about that. Of course, any physician who's hundreds of thousand dollars in debt and spent half their lifetime in education doesn't want to lose their license. Um, so that's like a gag order as far as um, the practice of medicine, something that we, you know, we, we have core values and we try to honor those core values in our concern for children and other patients. So when someone else outside of the medical system tells us you cannot talk about this subject, it becomes pretty scary. Uh, most of us are not going to fight that because we don't want to lose our medical licenses. I mean, that's how we make our living. So, so when I'm talking about the fact that we're not supposed to talk about it, legally, we were not supposed to talk about it, especially if you're practicing in Florida. So the rest of the country is watching that, and the physicians are wondering, oh, what does this mean for me? What if I talk to a family and they get upset and now they go and get a law passed? Now, a few years ago, that law was struck down uh, on appeal. Uh, I believe it was a nine-to-one decision that it was a infraction on our First Amendment rights and that the, the First Amendment was more important maybe than the Second Amendment. Uh, and I'm probably not explaining that properly in legal terms, but that was my understanding. 
And so there's still this prevailing fear, I think, on behalf of physicians of having some hard conversations, knowing that in the past, a physician might have lost their license for having that conversation. So I guess I hope that answers your question as to why things changed. And then there's still fallout. Despite the fact it's been um, struck down, there's still this prevailing fear that what if I say too much? What if I share that I think you should lock up your guns? Or what if I share that a fewer number of guns may make your children, may or may not make your children safer? Uh, what is going to happen to my to the practice of medicine for me? Okay, thank you. You did mention uh, adverse childhood experiences. That's, of course, the CDC's ACE uh, longitudinal study that's been going on uh, for many years, so I appreciate your uh, noting that. So let's let's take this one step further relative to... Uh, now, and I certainly appreciate your point, moreover, about there's this chilling effect now uh, from legislative efforts, successful or not, uh, experienced or felt by the professional medical community uh, relative to what they can and uh, cannot say without controversy. So just to exactly. cite, uh, this past Monday, uh, Kaiser Permanente announced that it would begin uh, studying gun violence by investing its initial amount, $2 million, obviously uh, not that much. I thought it was interesting. Uh, Kaiser is a, obviously very large, uh, moreover in the West, California, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, and several states in the East, has 12 million members, and between 16 and 17 their physicians treated 11,000 gunshot wounds. Um, so they've announced they're going to start uh, studying this subject. So that begs the question uh, relative to what do you think, uh, and let's just, um, what would make your practice, do you think, more effective relative to reducing gun violence, or say, uh, in the pediatric field? What could be done? What interventions should doctors or hospitals adopt? Uh, or what do you think could be done relative to uh, integrate firearm violence prevention. And I should note in this instance, um, suicides uh, is also a part, and we know that gun-related suicides are two-thirds of all gun-related deaths. So when we talk about gun violence, we need to include uh, suicides and, of course, typically associated with mental health conditions. Um, but let me, again, let's just limit, limit it to the pediatric field. What do you think would be effective? Well, um, there, there's sort of two questions in that. So as a pediatrician, what do I think would be effective in reducing gun violence overall? Mm -hmm. And then there's, for me, a, a second and really important element. What do I think as a pediatrician could reduce gun violence in our school? Great, great. So I, right. So I might take the first, the second one first, if that's okay. Sure. Um, for me, I've spent a lot of time after Parkland again and watching these teenagers stand up. I spent a lot of time looking at answering that question for myself as a as a physician. And what I've what I've found is there's some really great data in uh, something called student threat assessment. And I think this, for whatever reason, is not glamorous as a as an answer. Uh, like changing policy, but it really could make a huge difference. There is a growing body of evidence that we can begin to predict when these events are going to occur. It turns out that 80% of uh, school shootings, uh, in 80% of school shootings, the student or students who were perpetrators let another or more than one person know ahead of time what they were planning. And so that's a really important fact that I, I want out there in the world for people to understand. 
I'm not saying all events like this are predictable, but if 80% of them are possibly predictable, Mm -hmm. that is a huge area we can make an impact. Um, There's some very good data uh, called the Virginia Model for Student Threat Assessment, and it's a decision tree that groups of individuals, and we're talking hospital workers, physicians, nurses, um, school counselors, psychologists, administrators, community members, parents, this can be taught to uh, teams of people, teams composed of about six to eight people, uh, to to be rep- have a threat reported to them, and they can evaluate the threat. Not for how bad is it, more it's is it a random event or is this something where there's a plan? Is this something that this child's likely to carry out? Are students at risk? And now what do we do about this? And to me, that's groundbreaking. Um, in some of the studies, it's been shown to reduce violence by 44 to 64%. And we're also talking suicide. So we're not just talking school violence. We're talking um, injury or death by, by guns, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so kids will tell people they feel like they're, they're considering committing suicide. Children will tell their friends they're upset. Children will make hit lists. Children will make threats. And, and the important thing is right now we don't know what to do about that. Even even physicians, even parents say, oh, my child just came to me and said their friend is doing this or that thing. What do I do? Who do I tell? And you can call police, but law enforcement can't necessarily uh, go in and intervene in a way we think they should. Um, and, and it's also hard to know when someone's threatening something. You don't, you can't really arrest someone for making a threat. They have to commit a crime. And so if there's this stopgap measure that has good scientific data behind it. I don't know why we aren't doing this in every school in the country, because it doesn't require legislation. It doesn't require a policy change, and it doesn't require a lot of financial investment. It requires some volunteers, and it requires some training. And there are various organizations across the country, like Sandy Hook Promise, um, that will offer to offset the cost of doing this training in community. So that's really my first part of of that answer about what I think physicians should be standing up and saying, look, there's good science and good data backing that this, that investing our time in this effort will really change the risk for our children all across the country. Okay, thank you. And the former uh, aspect of the question relative to the clinical practice setting and for pediatricians, uh, other than their sharing in this training or learning, what might be done in the practice setting uh, in trying to prevent uh, gun violence? So for that answer, right now, I think our most effective strategy as physicians is education. I've always felt that I'm basically a teacher, uh, but, I, but my subject matter is a little different than you get in the school. So my job is to educate parents, to educate children, and to give to guide them through their lives. I, I don't view myself as being someone who tells another person what to do or tells them what they have to do, but rather I'd like to partner with my patients and I partner with both the parents and the children and we grow together and I do my best to keep them healthy. So to that end, when I'm talking about the risk of gun violence, um, reducing uh, their, their access to firearms is a large part of what pediatricians should do. And part of that is talking about it, asking parents, not telling a parent what they should do with their weapon. I think that would be me overstepping my role. But more importantly, do you have a weapon? Do you keep it locked up? Aware of where it is in your home. 
do your children understand what to do if they see a weapon unattended? Um, I'm, I'm not opposed to teaching children about the dangers of, of what a firearm can do. I, want, I think we need to be, instead of this back and forth, guns are good and guns are bad, um, I think we really need children to have knowledge of what is death, what can guns do to other people, what happens when someone's shot. And, and I'm not saying gory details. I'm saying age-appropriate discussions mm-hmm. about weapons. And so just like anything else I talk about, I think education's my role and I really do like to leave the policy to the policy makers. However, I would like to see more research and more, and I'm thrilled to hear what you're talking about, Kaiser is talking about doing, because with some of that uh, gag order that we discussed previously, there is a kibosh on money uh, for research on gun violence. And I think, as you are saying, we have more guns than anywhere else in the world. Does that necessarily mean that is the single cause of the fact that we have high rates of gun violence? I don't know that correlation is causation. Important distinction. And we do need research to say what interventions actually scientifically make a difference. I would love to have that information, and then I would love to share it with my patients. So I think funding research is one of the important things physicians should support. I think education in our offices and amongst each other and in the schools and in the public is another big part of what we should be doing. And then helping our families make decisions, providing them information that's scientifically based that allows them to be more informed so they can protect their own children and themselves and feel safe at home. Okay, thank you. Um, Just on the money, the two million for Kaiser, just to note, the last time the CDC had money in pre-1996, even that amount of funding was limited at $2.6 million for the Centers for Disease Control. Um, my closeout question would be an organizational question. So obviously every specialty has a professional association. Uh, certainly pediatricians do. So what can or should the professional associations, uh, the American Academy of Pediatricians, for example, what do you think their role should be? Let me just leverage your comment of, of encouragement uh, you saw uh, from high school students organizing and speaking out. But we haven't heard much from the professional associations, uh, AAP, and let's start with the AMA. You know, I live, work, and study in Washington, D.C., and it's not lost on me that uh, these professional organizations maybe put out a press release after the event and, and, the, and the subject gets no further discussion. So... Uh... 12% of practicing physicians currently belong to the AMA, the American Medical right, Association. Right, very few. And that's a very important fact that I think needs to be, I guess, shared amongst people or for the, for the public and for the legislators to understand. It, 50 years ago, uh, or even maybe a little longer than that, more than 70% of physicians belong to the AMA. And I think at that time, most of those physicians... Uh, my grandfather was a physician, and he was a member of the AMA. He knew the Mayo brothers, as a matter of fact. Um, so he would have said the AMA spoke for him. And he was a private general physician, uh, actually a clown next door, and he felt supported by that professional organization. And currently, 
a lot of the people that are involved with these professional organizations, they've, they've distanced themselves a little bit uh, from actual frontline physicians who are practicing, who are seeing patients every day. And, and there's a lot of reasons that that's happened. I don't, I don't think it was deliberate in any way, but that is where we have arrived. The AMA generates more money from their coding system, uh, the ICD-10, than they do from actual physician dues. So the issue is when you have more money coming from a different source, you're going to answer potentially to that source more than you're going to answer to the physicians who are sort of giving you small amounts of money. And so there's there's been this growing disconnect. And, and I don't know that there's a, a proper answer for that. I think there are a lot of grassroots physicians organizations that are cropping up and trying to speak for physicians on the front lines. And I am the quintessential position on the front lines. I'm a solo pediatrician. I've been in practice in my hometown that I was born and raised in for 17 years. My father was in practice before me for 47 years. He just passed away six months ago. We are on third generation families. So I, I see people who my father took care of the grandparents as children, the parents, and now I'm taking care of those grandchildren. So I have a really unique situation. Um, and as well as a unique perspective, I suppose, in that there's no one really speaking for those of us on the front line. And I think the AMA, in that same token, is distanced from the small communities where school shootings are happening. So when they're coming out with a press release, it's this 35,000-foot view, as opposed to the, you know, your own patient speaking out in the newspaper about how scary it is to go to school. And so I would say that I think physicians should start writing. I think they should start talking about things that are important to them, and they should be sharing things as best as they can without breaking confidentiality, of course, about what they're seeing on the front lines. The, the people who are treating these victims of school shootings, the people who are witnessing the long-term effects, whether it's psychological or mental health or physical effects and damage from these events, and I think those are powerful voices. And maybe the AMA or the American Academy of Pediatrics should be talking to those physicians more and giving them that platform. Um, and I guess that would be, if I were in charge of the AMA, that would be my way of handling it. I would reach out to Parkland physicians. I would reach out to Sandy Hook physicians and say, we need your voice. You have something that you need to share with the country, with the nation, and we need to be listening. Um, but for whatever reason, that isn't happening. Fair enough. I'd, that'd be difficult <laughs> to dispute that answer. So, uh, Naran, we're sadly at our time boundary. I do appreciate uh, this. Um, I commend your, Thank your, you. your, your speaking out on this. I hope you uh, persist in doing it, and I wish you all the best. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to be doing this today. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.